0: What we've seen is that the, the, the same people of the same age, like a 20-year-old, uh, you know, attending university, is a lot less tolerant today. Actually, companies just plowed right ahead with their their EDI. They, they yeah, the fact that all of the incentives to remove um, these these um, this diversity training were were, were essentially, you know, Clarence Thomas and Ronald Reagan had more or less gotten rid of those incentives, but the juggernaut just kept on rolling, Brexit faction that's dominated the Conservative Party are the uh, global Britain economic free trader type uh, Brexiteers, whose narrative was, uh, oh well, Britain on its own can be free of regulation to trade with the world and be a dynamic economy and so on. That is not why the vast majority of people voted for Brexit, but they managed to commandeer
1: uh, the Brexit ship. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today we're speaking with Eric Kaufman, a professor at Birkbeck University of London, a columnist at Unheard, and the author of White Shift. We discuss race, liberalism, scapegoating, ethnic nation states, academia, tolerance, DEI, Brexit, and the future of the Conservative Party. This was a really enjoyable conversation, and I feel like I really got everything out that I wanted to. And so I think it'll be great for you to listen to. If you want to support the show, you can always do so by letting a friend know. This is the number one thing that can help and not just helps the show. But if your friend is similarly interested in you, likes to listen to some of the same things, then they'll probably enjoy this podcast too. So please do that. You can also subscribe, leave a comment or a review. And without further ado, here's my interview with Eric Kaufman so big area of your work is race underrated or overrated in politics well
0: that's a very good question and, and I, I would say that if we take US politics for example uh, and I've kind of done work on this even my New York Times piece was about this a little bit is that the racial differences are in American society are actually not as large uh, as, as is talked about in the media um, race relations are actually pretty good but uh, race as a sort of second-order a part of an ideology. So your racial attitudes to affirmative action, Black Lives Matter, and that kind of thing is extremely important for politics. Um, and so I, an example would be: Do you, you know, oppose or support Black Lives Matter as a movement? Uh, you get about, you know, an eighty to eighty-five point difference between um, certainly white Republicans and Democrats, but even Republicans and Democrats in general. That's a probably the best issue we have for for splitting the electorate. So I think it is hugely important for politics, but it's not race relations and racial groups pitted against one one another, but it's racial attitudes uh, embedded in ideologies pitted um, against each other.
1: Right. But an interesting question on that front is whether this is just because Black Lives Matter is basically a Democratic Party client group. Right? If the Working Families Party, which is a kind of large, kind of labor esque organization, was as prominent as Black Lives Matter, but they're kind of directly affiliated with the Democratic Party, right? If they were as large and influential as Black Lives Matter and everyone had to have an opinion on it, right? Would that, do you think that would have a similar effect as the kind of polarization on Black Lives Matter? I, I
0: don't. I actually think this cuts hmm. deep, deeper than that. I don't think it's just party queuing. I mean, there's a theory in, you, you're probably familiar of where, you know, if the Democratic or if the Republican Party says Russia's bad and then all of its followers will be anti-Russia and vice versa. I mean, yes, there is some flexibility on, on some of these issues such as the free trade or the Russia or whatever. But I think this issue around Black Lives Matter cuts more deeply than that because it really twigs into a lot of the attitudinal predictors uh of of voting one way or the other um and so for example attitudes to crime uh attitudes to affirmative action attitudes to uh essentially what the the ideology I would call cultural socialism which is essentially about how you read American history and society I mean all of these things are implicated in black lives matter in a way they're less implicated in an issue like free trade or or attitudes to Russia, for example. So I would have thought that it's it's tapping into something deeper just than I'm on this team rather than that team, and this is a marker.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. What exactly is it tapping into? I know you mentioned those things briefly, but can you kind of tell the opposing stories and what kind of fundamental emotions or motivators those tap into?
0: Well, okay. I think you, have to, if we take on the Republican side, I think the, an emotion that sees disorder uh, as a problem, that sees $2 billion worth of property damage and spiking crime rates and all these sorts of things coming out of that movement that sees a lack of uh, respect for the country and its traditions. I mean, I think that would be how Black Lives Matter is being interpreted. Also, that is resentful of the way... Uh, the racism charges sort of weaponized, uh, the meaning of racism has expanded, you know, arguably out of out of all uh, recognition. So all of those sorts of resentments, I think, are, are bundled up on the on the Republican side. I think on the on the left side of the ledger, uh, the view would be that, though, know, this is sort of advancing a, a, a sort of long term arc of justice towards uh, greater equality and protection for vulnerable minority groups, and therefore, um, how could you be against Black Lives Matter? It's it's it represents everything that you know it means to be a progressive. So I think that now, especially, you know, in the wake of this, what's known as the Great Awakening, uh, Matthew Iglesias has, uh, talked about this, and and this is kind of this shift in white liberal attitudes or or white. Democrat voter attitudes since about 2015 um, on issues around race and to some degree on gender and sexuality. There's been a very measurable shift. So, for example, never before have, you know, white Democrat voters, majority of them supported increasing immigration. The the share that say they want to not just keep immigration the same, but increase it really just takes off after about 2015 attitudes on race issues become more liberal to use American terminology uh, than that of African Americans themselves. You know these are just sort of indicators of what's happening in the survey data. Uh, the attitudes of Democrats and, and white Democrats and liberals really move shift substantially in post 2015. So uh, I think all of that is a sort of context for why, Black Lives Matter then becomes a symbol of this attitude shift of the of the way in which new ideology is permeating into people who, yeah, they would have voted Democrat, they would have called themselves liberal, but it it didn't have the same content, the meaning of those terms. So they were receptive to the to what would become this new ideology, but they hadn't fully embraced in their attitudes uh, the way they have now.
1: Hmm, that's interesting because you mentioned affirmative action a few times, and from most recent polls that I've seen, affirmative action is opposed by somewhere between high 60s and low 70s, or low to mid 70s of the American population. And so it's quite difficult to imagine that that's quite polarizing, right? You have to have at least basically like 24% of Democrats or Democratic-leaning people who are supporting it, right?
0: Well, it depends how you ask the question. If you say, do you support affirmative action? You actually get quite a significant share. I would, th- I would say, a majority of Democrats would support it if phrased that way. If it's, do you support, uh, do you support sort of racial quotas, something that is what actually affirmative action is, but is worded in a much more clear and harsh way? That's when you get, you know. Only a minority uh, supporting it um, on the left, right. So, so it depends how you're phrasing the question. But yeah, if you just ask people, do you support affirmative action, you will get um, you know a majority of those on the left supporting. Uh, the question is always the devil is always in the details of what you know. Do you think that uh, you know uh, racial Race, race should be the the criteria for admitting people into college you know something like that where it's very clear that there's a racial quota and we're going to need to fill it and we don't care about merit then no you won't you'll only get the kind of minority you talk about uh, but but a lot of the, these survey questions are tricky because if you put a kind of positive sounding gloss on it you will tend to get you know quite strong support from the progressive side Um, It's a it's similar to by the way academic freedom questions and free speech questions. It's all in the wording, uh, because there's sort of this susceptibility amongst progressives to anything that sounds nice and humane, and so there and and that's. I don't think it's
1: just progressives either, right? There's all sorts of these effects with opinion polling. I mean, I talked about it briefly with Richard Hanania, and uh, (laughs) yeah, I think. After a while, following politics and especially following opinion polls, it's like, man, the question matters so much.
0: It does. But I don't think these questions are are worthless. And that's not just because I do a lot of surveying. I, I do think they're telling us something very real and very important. But people, you know, because of human psychology, people can anchor on, on the words that are early in the question. And and this can sort of throw the, the answers one way or the other. But I still think it's informative. And it still tells us something of the psychology of people and, and, and how they're answering these questions. So I don't want to I don't want to go the route of saying, oh, you know, uh, you ask the you can get the answer no matter how you structure the question. it's not quite true. I, I, so I do think there's something real that the variety of these answers is telling us about people's attitudes. Mm.
1: So what are the kind of what are the kind of psychological motivations behind these preferences, right? I think you mentioned a desire for order on the conservative side. Why do why do liberals or leftists uh, support this kind of affirmative action, right? What what kind of motivator is there for them? Yeah. Okay. So and I many think- of them personally, like at least hypothetically, right, are disadvantaged by it, right? There are many many white liberals. Yes
0: well i think it comes down to something you know, if you take jonathan heights moral foundations theory you know the sort of care harm and equal equality uh foundations i think that is essentially enough to explain pretty much what's happening uh, amongst progressives right so it's all about now the question could be well care harm for who? You know, do they care about
1: hmm.
0: unattractive white males who can't get a date? Well, no. Uh, so so it depends who we're talking about. So yes, there is an ideological framing, so the care and harm is going to be directed uh, at a, a hierarchy of identity groups with race at the top, and gender and sexuality kind of fighting it out for position number two, and uh, things like weight and, and looks and other those things pretty rated much less. So, so what you have is the care harm, it's about protection of historically marginalized race and to some extent gender and sexuality groups from harm, which is a sort of expanding category, which will include microaggressions and, um, you know, that the most sensitive individual might interpret something as being, uh, you know, emotionally unsafe or whatever, traumatic, whatever. So the care harm foundation's key. And then secondly, the equality, equal outcomes, equality of power, of status, self-esteem. So I think all of those things are encapsulated in what I term cultural socialism and and that these two moral foundations are really what underpin the progressive response to to a question right so if you can if you could tap into make some make something sound like it's it's really just about inclusion and it's about equality and it's about protection uh, then you're going to win a support the support of, of a majority of, of progressives um, so, so for example on academic freedom surveys or, or that I've run both in the general public and amongst academics. Uh, If you say something like, um, uh, do you support political correctness because it protects minority groups or do you oppose it because it stifles free speech? That's a question which uh, YouGov has asked here in Britain, and I've asked it in the US as well. Um, Amongst social science and humanities academics in Britain, it's about 75% in favor of political correctness and twenty percent against on that question. Um,
1: that's the sort of split. That's more optimistic than I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, but 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 whereas if you say uh, if somebody, if a professor uh, is doing research that shows that diversity is is negative for social solidarity, you know, like the Putnam hypothesis, or or something that's controversial, or, or the British Empire did more good than harm, you know, something like that, should such a person essentially be forced out? Um, out of their job, you'll only get maybe one in 10 academics that'll support that level of, of, you know, support for, for what I call cultural socialism, essentially prioritizing, uh, protection from harm over, over freedom of speech. It, it's only one in 10, but if you then take a question like that political correctness question, I mentioned, you know, 75% support for political correctness. So it, that just shows you how much variation there is depending on what you're asking even though in practice there is a very strong relationship between these sets of attitudes.
1: Right. Another kind of ism that I was trying to draw out from you. It's something that I've heard you talk about before is uh, left modernism, right? This kind of uh, aesthetic, uh, aesthetic difference. Uh, do you want to explain that? And uh, do you have any differences? Do you think that it's less, uh, it, it's less of a factor in, in left-wing ideology now than it was before?
0: No, I, th- I think left modernism is this sort of umbrella ideology that I would say is the, our dominant ideology today. And I think it's reached a peak of its influence. It's been going for uh, just over 100 years. So it's it's really at the zenith of its societal influence. It's been building for a century. And I think if people think about, oh, Marxism or socialism, you know, I think that's that's very much the, the an incorrect way of seeing what's happening to say, oh, well, we had Marxism and that sort of had its peak and it's went out in 1989. That's actually quite irrelevant because left modernism as a constellation of, of ideas, it's a hybrid ideology. It takes some elements from liberalism, some elements from socialism and it combines them in a new way. So the way I would, would define left modernism is it's really about to use a metaphor of, you know, an old video game console. I'm young, old enough to have remembered the Atari games where you plugged your cartridge into the console. Uh, so this is kind of like uh, what you've done is you've removed the cartridge that says class um, from the socialist console. And you've taken a cartridge that says identity, essentially race, gender, sexuality, and you've stolen that from the liberals who were the ones who were concerned about that question much more than, certainly more than communists, you take that cartridge and you plug it into the socialist console. So you've now got this new combination where you've transposed the concerns that liberals uh, had, the liberals who were fighting for, uh, you know, rights for for uh, African Americans, rights for women, and so on. And you've taken, you know, that they were the ones who were mainly uh, worried about identity. And you take that and before that they were worried about uh, rights for religious minorities, Catholics in Protestant countries etc and, and what you do is you then take that and you plug it into the, the socialist worldview the oppressor oppressed everything's about power, uh, radical transformation, revolution you know that kind of worldview uh, structural uh, interpretation of society so so it's that fusion really which is what we're living through now um, if you actually trace the intellectual origins of this, uh, you have modernism, which we can start to see as uh, influence in. We see its influence in art and architecture beginning roughly around 1900. I mean, Daniel Bell, who's sort of the key authority who shaped my thinking on this, um, the New York intellectual uh, who I met just before he died, actually, but I carried on a correspondence with him for for some 20 years or so. But he he sort of wrote. He wrote a book called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. Uh, in the mid-70s, where he talks about modernism as a cultural movement. And, and he's really thinking here, then, of this shift away from art, which carries on a tradition such as Christianity or, or seeks to represent the world in a sublime way as with landscape art or the romantics. And it moves towards abstraction and shock of the new. And it's about shocking bourgeois sensibilities and um moving away from representation, exploring very much the new and the different, I would say, is what's behind this outlook. And he says, well he, we, we start in modern art and then this moves in the 1960s due to the counterculture. Uh, it moves in, in a big way, scales up uh, with television and higher education to a much wider audience. Uh, and that starts to really shape um, society's outlook. But of course, modernism uh, is really about anti-tradition. It's about uh, no reverence for the past, but it doesn't say that much about necessarily inequality or protection of groups from harm. Those ideas are actually somewhat outside of modernism. Um, and actually, there are areas where the two clash, where the leftist ideas and the modernist ideas clash. I mean, we can see that today mm. with cultural appropriation, where a modernist would be very much pro Appropriation, and they very much were. Uh, and whereas a, a a sort of cultural leftist is very much against. Uh, but but still, there are modernist elements in modern day woke culture. For example, I mean the aesthetics uh, are very sort of anti traditional. Our, our you know sexuality the way that's handled is still quite modernist. Um, and so and there's a strong utopian strain. So all of this, I think, is why I would tend to describe this fusion of the kind of modernist impulse, which is a little bit more of a liberal, usually a little more of an expressive individualist liberal impulse um, with this sort of cultural leftism, which is really about equality and protection from harm. And these two things are kind of the dominant culture of today.
1: Right, and one interesting contradiction that I heard you talk about before, and I wanna just bring up briefly is that they tend to be very pro kind of cultural uh, almost tribalism or a cultural identification, let's say for minority groups. But if there's the exact same thing with whites or with men so on, right. And it's funny because men is not really a majority group, right. I think it's like 49.8% <laughs> of the population now or something like that. But that they're very much opposed to those exact same things that they would otherwise encourage, right?
0: Yeah, and, and that's a kind of continuity between the earlier modernism and contemporary uh, cultural socialism or wokeism. You, know, you can see that, for example, um, starting in the 1910s in uh, Greenwich Village in New York, you had uh, the emergence of a group of modernist intellectuals known as the young intellectuals, figures like Randolph Bourne who was sort of seen as an avatar of the youth culture of the 1910s. and you know if you look at what these Bohemian intellectuals were modernist intellectuals were doing they were having modern art shows, drug experimentation, going up to Harlem to see jazz, extolling the virtues of immigrant European groups, And to some degree, African-Americans, but especially European immigrants, uh, as against what they considered to be the staid, boring, uh, confining, parochial uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestants majority. Right. So that someone like Randolph Bourne in his essay, Transnational America, 1916, really urged his fellow Anglo-Saxon Americans to be cosmopolitan, to repudiate their narrow traditions Um, and to embrace the traditions of other groups, while at the same time telling other groups to stick to their traditions and not to assimilate and become, in his words, cultural half-breeds. And so that, that sort of what I call asymmetrical multiculturalism, where ethnicity is uh, terrible if, if you're a, a, the majority group, and it's fantastic if you're minorities. That's, that is really born in 1916 with Bourne's essay. And it becomes a staple, really, of a lot of writing in the 1920s, where they're attacking the Anglo-American uh, ethnic majority for instituting things such as prohibition of alcohol, which was very much a Protestant uh, set of legislation. Along with, by the way, votes for women, which were was actually linked very closely to a certain kind of Protestant nativism, but but so what we have is this kind of opposition to rural, particular. You know, there was still a majority of of America was rural that was heavily Protestant. So there's this opposition to that kind of middle American Protestant majority that was expressed in literature and arts. Um, so that kind of culture of anti-majoritarianism, anti-waspness, then. I think is a template for the later anti-whiteness, which comes in in the sort of late sixties and actually really blossoms more recently. Uh, So you see certain continuities that asymmetrical multiculturalism, the anti-whiteness praise for diversity as being so much more interesting than uh, sameness and homogeneity. All of that is, is, is already there in the 1910s. So I think there are, there's no question that that has an effect in shaping uh, the thinking that, that begins in the late 60s. And in fact, Bourne was studied by a number of sort of, uh, you know, 1960s left liberal groups as, as a sort of uh, somebody who was ahead of his time. So I think kind of there is that influence that comes from that earlier wave of modernism, but it just didn't have, you know, their critique of their own group, their own WASP group that most of them came from wasn't so much... About how nasty they were and that they were perpetuating structural disadvantage. It was uh, that was at best a very minor and moderate, uh, limited critique. But w- what it was about was much more, you know, the wasps have no culture, they're uninteresting, uh, you know, they're second rate intellectually, all these sorts of things compared to the spicy and exotic uh, immigrants from southern and eastern Europe. So that so that is kind of a different type of critique, but it it is still about what uh, Roger Scruton would call a culture of repudiation of one's own traditions
1: right and and what exactly did they did they like so much about other groups right maybe this is always just the grass is greener from uh, uh, on the other side but i'm i'm obviously chinese i i don't think there is that much of a i don't know in in more recent years right the the main appeal of other cultures to me is is just that they're are less uh, they're, quite frankly, less, like, sexually liberal, right? And, and I think, in my opinion, that's a plus. Uh, right. But other than that, like, back in the day, that that's not necessarily the case. Like, what did they see as the appeal of these other cultures anyway?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think there's clearly a lot of projection of um, a kind of utopian projection onto other cultures going on. Uh, now, of course, it is true that say Catholic immigrants, non-Protestant immigrants uh, from Europe, you know, had, you know, had a drinking culture. Maybe they danced more than particularly sort of low church. um, Oh God, Calvinistic, uh, you know, uh, Protestant Americans did. So yes, it is. There was, it's not that there was no truth. I mean, there is obviously some truth to the idea that there was a certain cultural repression, you you know, Repressing drink and dance, which in certain versions of um, low church American Protestantism would have been would have been there. So there, there, and it is true that you know, uh, jazz, you know, African American jazz was more exciting, and 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 there were. So it's not as though the critique had nothing to it, but at the same time, it was hugely overblown and an incredibly romanticized, one dimensional portrait of the of these immigrant groups was being put forth by these modernist intellectuals. I mean, you also had this, by the way, with the uh, exoticization of the South Seas, uh, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, Margaret Mead, this idea that they had total sexual liberation as opposed to the uptight bourgeois uh, (laughs) Anglo-Protestants. Well, the reality, I think a number of different writers have since debunked these highly romanticized portraits, Uh, this, you know, almost noble savage-like portraits. But, but, yeah, I just think there was a, a, these bohemian intellectuals would just project a lot of their their utopian, uh, you know, hopes and dreams onto new peoples as being somehow just a relief from whatever society that they were from. Um, <laughs> so that that I suppose was the initial critique, and, and maybe also you know it extended to food. And again, this it's not like there's no point uh, to their critique. You know, there is, of course, it is probably true that that the food of many Italians was better than that of middle Americans in in some ways, but of course they would be blind to uh, some of the good food that could also be had in rural uh, middle America. So yeah, it's not to say that there was nothing to their critique, but I think they very much played on very much romanticized, uh, you know, the view of the other and and that they exoticized the other and and, and were attracted to that. Right. Uh,
1: To me, it's, really kind of much simpler than that at least in the political aspect right what's happening with these artists and intellectuals like I don't know you could be right seems reasonable but to me it seems like a script that's played over and over again in almost every country in almost all of history and the funny tweet that I have about this is basically the reason why your English department is acting like every third world country ever is not because they read Foucault and that this kind of racial scapegoating this demonization of quite frankly a more successful group uh to to basically rile up a less successful group this is something that happens in every country with different racial groups or different tribes or even in China with different families right this is something that happens just all the time and the reason why it happens is because people are envious People are tribal. It's very easy to gin up this type of dem- demagoguery. And quite frankly, it works. It's a, it's a good way to get political power. But, and so to me, there's a much simpler explanation here, which is that actually they're just doing this kind of scapegoating. That's, that's just always gone on.
0: Well, I guess what I would, you know, I can certainly see scapegoating of other groups, but typically throughout history, this has been scapegoating of the other right? It's, it's not been attacking yourself in a way. I mean, this is what's sort of unique and I think distinctive. I mean, if you go to China, you know, how many Chinese intellectuals are saying that the Han Chinese are a poisonous force in history? Uh, we've despoiled everything we've touched. Now, it is true that in Taiwan, there are some intellectuals who, but of course this is tied into Taiwanese nationalism. Of course, they are ethnically Han, but there are some progressive intellectuals that say, you know, Han is a sort of, uh, you know, poisonous force and and they're holding up the autochthonous Taiwanese as as, as a sort of... you know, a, a people that were were conquered and, and completely.
1: Uh, I think you're tried. looking at. I think you're looking at a much smaller example than the much bigger example, which is Maoism. And Maoism is almost a direct parallel to this. Many people have uh, draw this direct parallel to Maoism. This type of renunciation of culture, renunciation of traditions. It, it's very similar. And of course, we haven't starved anyone to death yet. Yet, <laughs> at least right. not large populations to death. Uh, and hopefully we never will, right? The, America is uh, famously fertile. Uh, the soil is famously fertile. But we're in the situation where this is very much, and I don't think it's just now, as I said before, it's something that happens across time. And a very easy way for people who, quite frankly, are maybe not so bright and not able to compete in a kind of technical positive growth economy Right. The demagogues are basically like less capable than ever in an open market system. There's there's no room for them. They would otherwise be very much they would otherwise at least not as much as a kind of as a tri- kind of tribal society and especially as a kind of strong familial society. There's much more room for them there. Right. At least relatively. And so where do they go? They go into these universities. They go into uh, political positions, of course. where uh, always the home of the demagogue, right? And they bring back this gigantic wave of basically uh, rebellion against the systems that have resulted in, in my view, the most prosperous country in the history of humanity.
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, I... I think the phenomenon that, that I'm talking about is, is this culture of repudiating your own ethnic group and you know, being against it. And, and, and I think that is trickier to, to, to see in human history. I mean, you can certainly find, like if you take the Cultural Revolution, clashing interpretations of national identity. Uh, and you find that in Russia, say, you know, between those who want Russia to be more Eastern facing, and to talk more about orthodoxy or more Western facing and to think of itself as part of European high culture. I mean, that's been a theme in European history or in Russian history or, or in uh, France. You know, those who look to the Gauls were more liberal and those who look to the Franks, the sort of origin of the uh, the monarchy, who wanted monarchism back who'd be more conservative. So, you know, Many I see people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I see the cultural revolution more as a question, not of like repudiating the Chinese, the Han Chinese as, as an ethnic group, you know, it's not saying we Chinese are, are awful. We're a cancer on humanity. You know, and I, if you, if you look at Susan Sontag, 1966, you know, whites are a cancer on the, you know, that kind of language, that sort of emphasis that we ourselves, our group are, are a poison and are a negative. That's just not really what, what even the cultural revolution was. I mean, the cultural revolution, yes, it was bashing, what they saw as Chinese history and as some kind of confining past, but it wasn't an attack on on the ethnic Chinese themselves. And I think that's a, a very important distinction to make. Um, whereas what we're seeing post Randolph Bourne, post the young intellectuals, is an attack on the ethnic majority of society. Now, most countries in the world, you know, seventy percent have an ethnic majority. It's a sort of standard. Uh, in in across the world's nation-states. It's just odd to see uh, a society where there is that attack on on one's own ethnic group. And and I guess looking historically, I find it difficult to see many parallels for this. Um, I think it seems like a very distinctively post-20th century West, particularly Anglo, phenomenon. And I think it's very much ideological and ideology-driven can't really be reduced, I think, to these broader evolutionary patterns, even though you're right, of course, is making use of those motives and patterns, but I don't think it's explicable outside of its context.
1: Yeah, I I don't think we agree, or sorry, I don't think we disagree that much here. I I do agree that the the new kind of trick, if you want to call it that, is attacking, bringing this kind of ethnic attack together with attacking the majority. I want to know why you think it's so significant. Well, why is it such a deviation or innovation on on what happened before, right?
0: Because I think it signifies a a, a desire to sort of upend a social order in the age of nations. Of course, the age of nation states, which dates late, let's say, from the eighteenth century, um, you know, most nation states either were formed around an ethnic core or an ethnic core majority emerges afterwards. And so, so, you know, this is just a very common setup is to have sort of an ethnic majority within a nation state. Um, But it's just very curious to see uh, a historical phenomenon of, of, of a, a group turning against itself as a people. Um, And I think that's what's, what's very interesting about this phenomenon. And I think it's what's kind of defined, the period since the 1910s and it's very much defining the cultural moment we're in. Uh, the sort of anti-whiteness is very central to this project. Um, and, and, yeah, now, of course, you've always had, co- you know, cosmopolitanism is a much older idea uh, of wanting to be a citizen of the world. And that's, you know, that's been going since the ancient Greeks. But but this, this act of repudiation of one's own group and, and wanting to invert what has been but it's generally a kind of, you know, in history, you, you, people will be attached to their own culture and group. They may be critical of it. They may want. They may look to a different set of exemplars uh, than than the, their political opponents. But to actually want to overturn that completely is,
1: you know, I think it's
0: very new. Now, is it significant? Well, yeah, I do think it is significant. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I get because I think. You know, ethnic attachment is fairly ubiquitous. Now, I'd, of course, you have a great, you know, a great range. You have some people who it's like extended family; it matters to some people, it doesn't matter to other people, and and so that's pretty normal. But I just think to have the sort of the group for whom it doesn't matter become so much the dominant group and act to the point of actually, you know, castigating and attacking uh, their own group. I mean, that's I think quite distinctive in ideological terms. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I would say that I think that is that is an important historical development.
1: Hmm. I don't think, I mean, maybe you don't th- agree with this kind of phrasing either, but I don't think it doesn't matter to them. It's not like, it's not they're like, oh, it doesn't matter that I'm white, especially for a lot of these kind of, as you say, cultural socialists, right? They're very cognizant of it. They act with a kind of original sin. I think it matters to them very much, right? They, it, it's very salient to them. Would you agree with that? Um,
0: hmm. I, I, I don't think it's as salient to them as, for example, their identity as a progressive, for example, or their identity as, you know, even a Democrat, let's say. So I would say that they may accept that they are a member of this group. Um, they may accept that, that, you know, they, they may think that this group has sinned and they have to atone and be one of the good whites and the allies. But in terms of affection for the group, for its, for its myths and symbols and collective memory, I, I I'm skeptical. I, I think it's not nothing. I'm trying to think of the, uh, you know, I, I, for example, there is survey data that the only, group that feels cooler towards themselves than other groups are white liberals, for example, in the American National Election Study. So there's no question they feel cool towards their own groups, whereas, say, African-American conservatives will feel more warmly towards African-Americans than towards whites, for example, whereas white liberals will feel more warmly towards uh, African-Americans than to whites. So I think there is something distinctive there going on. And I think if if I was to, you know, and I've done surveying on this as well, if you look at what is your most important identity, uh, you know, for white liberals, their most important identity from a list of, let's say, 10, which includes things like religion and nation and uh, local community and and, uh, gender and all these sorts of things will be, uh, particularly those who are strong uh, liberals, will be their ideology. And so I think that's, really their paramount identity it's not to say they have zero uh, white identity but um yeah I don't i don't see that it's a driving force in in in, in their conception
1: of what matters to them now so an interesting question that came to me just now is that to me this kind of and I don't know i'm not sure if i'm as historically knowledgeable as most people so that this might be this might be false but uh, let me know if you think this is true it seems to me that this recent racial movement is is unique or novel in that it prim- primarily focuses on on negativity and then constructs positivity afterwards right it's not even like they're black nationalists it's like the, the hatred of white people comes first and like being pro black comes after Whereas, for example, even many white nationalists, of course, they also would hate other groups, but it would be primarily focused on that kind of homeland, that kind of, uh, that kind of value, that kind of community, that kind of in-group, right? And then the out-group would be defined in opposition to that. This kind of construction, th- that seems like a notable difference to me. So, so two questions. Is, is that actually true? Is that something that's historically new? And do you think that that's notable?
0: Yeah, I mean, you raise a really interesting point, which is the difference between hostility to the outgroup and attachment to the in-group. You know, it's commonly thought that these are the same thing, but actually they're uh, not only analytically, but empirically uh, actually very distinct. Um, there's a good paper by Marilyn Brewer, who I cite quite a bit, um, a heavily cited paper on in-group love uh, and and outgroup hate, I think it's called, Um, You know, if you look at the again, if we take a survey like the American National Election Study, the leading survey political scientists use, there's a question on thermometer warmth to whites, to, to blacks, to Hispanics, so on. You know, white people who are who feel warmer to white people do not feel cooler to black people, for example, than white people who don't feel especially warm. And for the people. audience, what yeah. does warm and cool mean? Warm means uh, how you know it's a question is you know how warm do you feel on a zero to one hundred thermometer towards th- this group, uh, you know, hundred being the warmest, zero feeling the coldest. Whereas, it, so, so there's not a a, a zero sum relationship between uh, racial identity. If we take if we take racial identity in the U.S., but that's also been found for other kinds of identities. Now, where there is There can be a zero-sum identity when the groups are in conflict, Uh, Mm. strong conflict over resources, war, for example, then you do get a relationship. One one example of that in the U.S. would be the warmer you feel towards the Republicans, the cooler you feel toward the Democrats, and vice versa. That is a very zero-sum kind of identity. But the uh, ethnic and racial ones are not zero-sum, and they don't have that uh, characteristic to them. Now it's not to say they could never become zero sum in the future. Of course, that's they, very interesting. Yeah.
1: Wait, so so they're not they're not correlated at all, or correlated very weakly. That's actually it's, very surprising to me. It's not correlated. So the, 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 you're, huh. they're they're just the, those sentiments
0: of warmth or coolness are not correlated, and, and and in fact that's very much in keeping with this literature, which because attachment to kind of stems comes first through attachment to the mother and and hatred of is, a, is an orientation psychologically that develops later. And, and so this is not, the, of course, the, if these, these things can be yoked together by certain kind of configurations, but they're not, uh, you know, developmentally the same. And, and so I think we, we then have to explain, okay, uh, how this works in, in particular instances. You know, very, so very often the, the claim is made that, you know, for example, with the Trump vote, white identification was a predictor of Trump voting independently of uh, views of racial minority groups. That's a point Ashley Jardina made in her book, White Identity Politics. That kind of was something that I'd read, uh, or her thesis that informed the book is something I read prior to White Shift. But I think it's a very important point because often you'll get a progressive critique of, you know, anybody who is, is um, you know, identifying with a particular ethnic group wanting to preserve a, a, a you know, a majority share or their group's share in a population um, is is racist and I, and i think that's actually incorrect i think actually what that we have to distinguish between um, attachment to and, and and hatred of and they're they're dis, they're different orientations now of course they can be linked together i mean i think in the case of say trump you know you could i would distinguish something um, like building the wall Um, which could be interpreted as a protective defensive measure for the white majority group to some degree. I know it's also about security and about a whole bunch of other things. From talking about Mexicans or Muslims in a certain way, which is very much demonizing of an out-group and I think is racist. So I think you have to actually, I would make that distinction when talking about racism, I think you have to be very forensic in how you use the term. And squashing together attachment to and hatred of is is a common move that's made by progressives that are criticizing um, national populism. And they just think, Oh, we'll just call that racist. But actually it's very lazy. And and to some degree, uh, you know, I can see why they're doing it. It's very politically useful to, to use that taboo, but I think it's actually silencing an important debate.
1: Right. And to me, I, I think your reasons also make a lot of sense, but to me, what's, very interesting about that is I see it as a way to avoid blame, right? If you're a black nationalist and you demonize uh, white people as a secondary thing, but primarily your thing is is uh, essentially like black power, right? And building these communities up, then you actually have to build the communities up, right? right. and if you <laughs> if you have just economic material results, like the one we've seen ones we've seen, uh, in African-American communities, you're not a very good black nationalist. You just aren't. Uh, you, you have, you have done, you have done, uh, quite, uh, quite some damage to, uh, to African-Americans in the past, uh, let's say 30 years. Yeah, Yeah. And if you are, but if you're primarily demonizing another group, if that's where it comes from first, if that's the first thing, like, they're doing okay at demonizing the other group. They're actually doing quite well at demonizing the other group. Are they Are they benefiting the in group at all? Like not really. But are they are, are they demonizing? Yeah, they're demonizing all right. Well, well, I think you've got to distinguish though between what feels good and what is good for for. So, so
0: it may feel good to blame your problems on another group. Um, sort of in a a you know in the short term that might be more palatable psychologically, right. but that is not likely to produce the kind of social changes that are going to lead to the group lifting itself out of whatever position it's in. Um, but I also think in, in something like black nationalism, you do have other strains. You do have a, there is a strain of, you know, we have to, uh, well, a self-improvement strain that that we have to take control. The white person isn't going to help us. Um, we need to reform ourselves. That, that strain does exist in, in black nationalism, and to the extent that exists, I think it's actually a positive strain. And uh, I mean, it was there even in, I think even in Nation of Islam, Malcolm X. Now, of course, I I think there's a whole lot of of problematic things that are coming out of that uh, radical black nationalist tradition around demonizing whites and so on. But there is uh, a strand there, which I think is positive and can be used. And and of course, over time, these sort of cultural revival and reform movements, you know, there was a reform movement amongst Mohawk Indians in, in, uh, I think, upstate New York and in in the adjacent part of Ontario called the Handsome Lake Movement in the sort of late 18th century where this leader arose and he said, we've got to be sober farmers, ditch the alcohol. uh, and, And actually, it had a, a a profound effect. This kind of spiritual revival, cultural effect. People saw him as some kind of a uh, a leader with kind of um, what's the word? Uh, well, uh, oh, not a deity, okay. but but, uh, but was 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 seen as a kind of prophet. And and that can lead those movements can lead actually to uh, very positive social changes. And and so you know, I don't, I wouldn't want to discount the black nationalist tradition entirely, but I think that there's also a, a negative strand it's really not helped the group.
1: Yeah, and fundamentally, I see... This is actually... Have you, have you ever been on Clubhouse? I haven't. It's just one of these things. I don't have time to do all these things. <laughs> right, I, I'm not on it much anymore, but yeah. when I was, one of the most interesting... Uh, I don't know if divisions is the right word, but uh, points of debate, let's say... In these majority or completely black rooms, uh, was this tension between basically? I think positive uh, black nationalism, if you want to call it that. I don't think it was really in that tradition. But basically, like we need to be building, we need to be self, we need to be self-reliant, we need to be basically getting these material results, and a kind of more liberal, kind of corporate DEI wing of this that is much more reliant on these basically political structures and that those debates were always very interesting to listen to just as an outsider because while I think that many of their original attributions are wrong it's very interesting because one of these sides the, the kind of more nationalist side or the, basically the more positive side those actually create methods of testing their hypothesis right and you know what many of the things that they're they're proposing like it could actually work Right. It it could be something that is a very good strategy in actually uh, gaining those material results. Yeah. Uh, And what I see as being very crucially important to this kind of liberal, especially university or academic style retention of power is actually that it's unfalsifiable is actually that it's not something that can be put to the test and that it's much more of basically a protection racket for prestige. Then it is a kind of attempt to build something, or attempt to actually change outcomes.
0: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that a lot of the, a lot of what seems to rise to the surface in the culture now around these issues, uh, coming out of minority activism, but also that minority activism, which is, um, very much in tune with what left modernism uh, wants, you know, because don't forget the position of the white progressive in this, that if you had a black nationalist movement that said, uh, we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, um, you know, intact families, you know, no more drugs and alcohol, whatever. uh, And we don't need the help of the whites, please stay out. Um, That's actually quite a tough message for a white progressive to hear because the white progressive then no longer has a role. Mm. Right. As 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 the good white who will, um, you know, rectify, you know, if 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 all of the lack of progress of, of African-Americans is not due to s- systemic racism perpetrated by I systemically, uh, well, well, a, a, a society oriented around whiteness and white privilege, the whole narrative falls apart and the whole meaning falls apart. So I think the biggest loser uh, of this shift away from seeing the faults, uh, you know, seeing the lack of, of progress of, say, African Americans as, as being attributable to past and present systemic discrimination is, is actually white progressives who built their meaning and identity around pre- precisely that role. And, and I think you could argue that that's an impediment. I mean, I'm not saying that there is an extremely powerful um, black nationalism that's advocating that today, but you know, if you do surveys, I, I one of the questions that, that I asked in a sample of 800 African Americans was, um, you know, do you support political correctness? Is political correctness necessary to protect, and, and, and defined as being very, uh, white people being very careful in how they speak to African Americans? You know, is that necessary to protect uh, black people, or is it insulting to blacks? Now, of course, you could, to some degree, believe both things, but the way these forced-choice questions work, which is kind of a stronger animating sentiment, and you would you would tend to get more uh, black respondents saying that it's insulting rather than that it's necessary. And, and however, if you look at the same question to white liberals, uh, they would lean very much heavily, very heavily towards the it's necessary to to protect blacks, not it's insulting. And I think that's kind of revealing. So in in that kind of a question. Uh, black respondents are much more similar to white conservatives than to white progressives, uh, and, and I think that just shows this this sort of matrix, right, where there is a significant ch- uh, chunk of African American opinion who believe in the kind of Booker T. Washington uh, up by your bootstraps kind of we have to do it ourselves, self empowerment philosophy, um, and that's not really finding a lot of expression in our elite institutions because it doesn't really chime very well with the Um, the identities of white progressives.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's just that. I think that precisely what is successful in especially academia, but also in media, in uh, politics, is this basically protection racket, right? Is this basically politics of envy that entrenches legacy or entrenches is basically what I call the inheritor class, right? All of the people who either inherit power uh, so, by via uh, literal inheritance, via ideological conformity, or via these other social processes as opposed to creating power. Uh, and so what is very important here is not just this unfalsifiability, although I think that's quite important. It's that essentially it is this, like, it is this closed loop. It is a closed loop where, okay, what are you downstream of? You're downstream of other people who are engaging in this politics of envy. And the way you win at politics of envy is to be unambitious, conformist, and heavily negative and envious and scapegoating. And I have much more detailed cases on that, but and we can go into that if you want. But I do want to. I do want to. Yeah I, mean, so <laughs> yeah, I but mean, I do I, think that's very important.
0: I, I think it is important too. And, I, and of course, if you look at a lot of the foundations and you look at, uh, you know, um, uh, well, Mackenzie Scott and and, and uh, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, and, you know, yeah, you know, that story certainly rings true. But I think, I guess I've, I tend to see this issue of cultural socialism much more as like, like COVID, like a virus that sort of, to some degree, spreads in a population and, um, you know, if you get it, you become a spreader and you spread it to others. Not so much as in that neo-Marxist way of, well, it's in the interests of certain people as a group and therefore they do it almost out of status or, or economic. I, I do think, you know, there is no question that when something becomes the dominant value in elite circles, then status seekers will pursue it. I think that's a secondary, uh, Dynamic. The primary dynamic is the, uh, the true believer, uh, people who have who contracted the mind virus, who then spread that virus. I, I, I'm more partial to the view that these are true believers um, and that, that that is sort of – it's really a sense of true belief. Now, you, you're, you're right that in a sense maybe somebody who is from a very wealthy family can't hope to achieve in economically what their parents did – uh, but has a lot of resources might find this ideology more attractive than, say, somebody who is from a poor family. I think that's probably true. But in a lot of these, um, you know, every time you do these studies of um, uh, belief in cultural socialism, attitudes to these cultural issues, I mean, in in so many of these regression analyses, you know, personal economic circumstances really don't come out very strongly as a predictor um of of one's own right oh i should make it clear that this
1: isn't this isn't an economic analysis at all this is very much based on like patterns of behavior and self-sorting uh actually okay let's dive into this because i think yeah certainly if we had we had more time i would always want to give you the full kind of analysis but this is this is always the thing i'm going to try to speed run this right that there are two types of institutions or two categories of institutions one that's sort on explicit competition and ones that sort on explicit competition, right? So implicit competition is office politics. It's uh, forming coalitions. uh, It's basically status competition. And the other is explicit competition. So implicit competition, a good example of this, is like your HR department. And then explicit competition, a good example of this is SpaceX or the Manhattan Project. Or uh, quite frankly, like a a lot of what is happening in China. Although obviously there's a mix of both in China. Uh, But when you have when you have explicit competition, the locus of competition is just doing the thing, right? There's a thing that you need to do, and if you and uh, it's almost much more scientific in that you want things to be falsifiable, and you know if you do the thing, then you get rewarded. If you don't do the thing, you either you either face a punishment or you're just fired, right? And in implicit competition. This is basically this is basically reversed. There's very little uh, measurement of whether you actually do the thing. And what is primary is the kind of signaling. Is is essentially what your intentions are, what you claim to support, what your uh, the, the words that you speak. Uh, I, I know Doomberg, a former guest on the show, has this has this quip that in politics words speak louder than actions. Um, <laughs> and and in implicit competition, that's very much the case. And in and most cases, organizations are a mix of both. Uh, very is very rare that you have something that's absolutely in one one and, and absolutely not in the other. But uh, of course, there's the concentration of explicit versus implicit, it varies a lot based on based on the industry. And you can kind of look at these observations in, in these organizations across time. Now, why is this important and what what does it have to do with uh, with cultural socialism? Well, the people who who are self sorted for or who are selected for these institutions will vary depending on that concentration, and there, there's no kind of necessary cynicism or no kind of necessary basically strategy or coordination at all. If you have an organization that is and that is fundamentally based on implicit competition, it will select people who are more who are based on implicit competition, right, who are good at implicit competition because, well, that's what's happening in the organization. And the same thing is true uh, for explicit competition. Now, when this happens, right, all of the people who are censored on the implicit competition, there's basically an arms race. Once again, not necessarily consciously, but very much in the kind of Steve Jobs sense, right? Steve Jobs had this famous quote, there are A players and B players. If you let even one B player on a team of A players, they all become B players because a B player is basically someone who competes over status. So you have this, so people who are fundamentally oriented towards implicit competition, they're always going to be basically behaving in these ways that, uh, that promote envy and that self-select for further people who act in that manner in those organizations and the reason why this is so important for politics is that politics is kind of very blatantly a sorting algorithm it's very blatantly uh the coalitions are formed in this manner and formed most most quickly in this manner as opposed to something like uh, like a startup or a business for example and so you kind of get these speed runs for these strategies uh that basically emerge naturally out of any high communication environment
0: well i mean there's a
1: lot there
0: and i I think you know you're suggesting that people are sorting, and I do think that sorting occurs. There's no question. Um, sorting into academia is, to some extent, predicated on you know people who who are more attracted to cultural socialism are going to be more attracted to academia, and particularly those sectors of academia that are the least scientific, least based on falsifiability, and so on. But I I guess I would still. I would tend to still believe in more of this kind of ideational model. Like, if, So if we take college students in America, you know, from the general social survey has been, you know, surveying uh, people in America since 1972. Um, and you can even, you can see that amongst university, university educated young people, uh, there've been some significant shifts in attitudes. So it used to be that those university educated young people were more tolerant of uh, all kinds of heterodox speakers, militarists, gays, communists, but also racists speaking in public than um, conservatives. And, and actually what we've seen is that the, the, the same people of the same age, like a 20 year old uh, you know, attending university is a lot less tolerant today, is a lot more marinated in cultural socialism today. Uh, we see it in these long run data trends. There's been a, a number of other studies as well, so I, I guess I'm still of the view that these young people are coming to college, coming, showing up at college with a very different set of priorities, you know, a very different set of cultural conditioning. Um, and I don't think it's, I don't think this is largely explained by who selects into college. I mean, it's, it's, it's. Why not? Because they they were selecting into college then. They're selecting into college now. The rates are not dramatically higher, they are, um, it, it's just that the, the indoctrination with let's call it from mass culture, from uh, schooling uh, is different. It's a different environment than it was then. Whereas cultural relativism, value relativism might've been stronger then, value absolutism has become stronger now. And, and that's again, another paper that showed, showed that precisely. So I, I don't think it is so much to do with the attraction as to do with the, the social and cultural learning and the messaging and what's valuable that's been imprinted in these people uh, as they're then entering college. And so I don't because actually the studies of college itself don't show a hell of a lot of value or, or attitude change. Uh, I've looked at, for example, people who are intending to attend university and those who are in university of the same age and there's no difference in their in their attitudes. I mean, it, so I think it's I guess what I'm saying to you is I don't think it's dri- that is not driven so much by selection. Now, I would certainly say that if
1: Wait. Yeah, go I, ahead. I think we're just not talking about the same thing. Right. I I I'm talking about what narratives become dominant within university power structures themselves whereas I think you're talking about just like the general the general like student body. Okay. Yes. But but I think there's I, I think there's like no way you can say that the selection mechanisms for professors for what gets published for who gets hired who gets tenure there's no way you can say that those are the same today as they were before. Uh, I agree. Yeah, totally. I
0: I agree. Um, although I think there are more continuities with the past. I'm one of these people who believes that the sort of woke you know the, the great awakening actually is more of a Quantitative, more people pushing on open doors. Those doors were open in the 80s and 90s, I think, arguably, even in the 60s. You know, whenever, if you go back and you look at uh, illiberal um, progressivism, you know, even in the late 60s, very rarely was it actually resisted. You know, it's just that there were fewer people pushing on those open doors. So i right, agree. I I think that it's just that there are more foot soldiers of the revolution now, and they're in more places. And now, is there self-selection into you know black studies and 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 uh, you know gender study? Absolutely, of course there is. We know that. Um, is there self-selection into academia? I, I also think there is. Yes. Um, but I, you know, so yeah, you're probably right that as academia shifted from let's say social science academia, which was about three to one left to right in the mid 60s and is say 12, 13 to one today. There's no question that as that proportion increased, the the typing of academia as a left wing discipline also no doubt increased and their signals that that sends to perspective. Graduate students also changes. So yeah, I think there is, there, but, but I think, I guess I would sort of also at the same time, we have to look at the fact that law students, med students are vastly more left-wing than they've ever been. I mean, studies show that, and, and, and this has changed over time. And now to say that, you know, left-leaning people, are they suddenly wanting to become lawyers more than people did in the past? Are right-leaning people avoiding law, avoiding medicine? I, I I'm skeptical. I guess I just think most of this is, explained by the fact these have become status beliefs in elite circles how have they become status beliefs in elite circles I think it's a critical mass phenomenon once they and, and Max Weber the sociologist you know generally has this view that you know' the, he has this metaphor of the switch man that culture kind of comes first that the cultural change comes first that's the person switching the tracks and then once the tracks are switched, people who are chasing status the locomotive will then chug down those 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 different tracks i think that's kind of the way i would explain what's occurred is that the cultural change came first as a result of ideational change switch the tracks switch the incentive system change what is a status belief and then the status seekers then charged after the new set of beliefs which happen to be the woke beliefs i
1: just completely disagree with this timeline. <laughs> I think that downstream of all of this is it, are those selection pressures. I think that you had basically this kind of neo-racist style um what do they call it now Hol- holistic admissions, very funny. Very <laughs> right, funny right. joke, guys. Very <laughs> funny joke. Um really, and I agree with you that it's much older, it's, it's much older than most kind of quote unquote, like intellectual dark web people. And even most right wing people realize how long affirmative action has been the current affirmative action regime, the style of affirmative action regime has been uh, there since that court case. Uh, I've talked to Richard about this as well. Uh, there is basically a legal enforcement regime that says that you have to do this neo-racism and you have to create departments of neo-racism. And, uh, and it creates, it basically manufactures explicitly many of these sorting mechanisms that basically make it so that if you are someone who holds these neo-racist ideas or at least pretends to, you will get to higher places. And I don't think it's it's less so, and this is something that I want to be clear uh, uh, because I often push back against the incentives people. It's less so an incentive, although it, it obviously is partially a, an incentive, but the, the even stronger effect is just that If you have one person who does this, who holds these beliefs, and one who doesn't, that person who holds these beliefs is selected, even if they're much less competent, into these roles, right? Into these roles in various university departments, and ultimately, those specific roles are what controls university culture, are what controls the, ultimately, the media power that propagates this kind of ideology.
0: Yes. Yeah, but I and it's I think we're getting to the heart of the debate that I would have with both Richard and Chris Caldwell on this, which is that I don't see those legal changes as the unmoved mover uh, for this chain of events. I actually, and you can look to other countries like Canada, which actually has affirmative action now. Uh, you know, you can look to other countries as well. So there's, and, there's a lot of
1: sex-based affirmative action. Uh, some schools do affirmative action now, but it's not—it's not, uh, it, it's not a, nearly as widespread as the U.S.
0: Yeah, and and it's, you know, sex-based affirmative action—you see that in Europe and in many places. What I what I would say is that the cultural shifts came first, and informed judicial activism, which then rendered a series of interpretations activist interpretations, took the most activist interpretation of a decision like the 1971 uh, decision, which the name of which is eluding me right now, the key 1971 decision around um, uh, disparate impact, for example, which actually was the context for that was a firm which had a history of racial discrimination. And the decision was made in the context of this firm because it had a history of racial discrimination. Subsequent uh, judges simply airbrushed that out and simply said, oh, you know, even if you don't intend to discriminate disparate impact. So they, at each step in the chain, there was a sort of willingness to take the most uh, cultural socialist interpretation of the last step in the chain. And, and this is, to my have mind, have
1: you ever seen the uh, the clown putting on makeup meme? And no. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. It, it, I remember making or seeing a meme, uh, retweeting a meme that was something like that. It's like, it, it's like, um, there should not be the normal man's face. Is like there should not be racial standards, and then second one is there. There should not be like some some evidence that standards may be used in a racial context and it's and then at the bottom of the chain, it's like it's just full on disparate impact. Uh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, go on. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But but this is, you know, I can see it today. Like if you if you take a different context, Britain, it has something called the 2010 Equality Act. Um, Universities uh, in Britain will misinterpret willfully the 2010 Equality Act to suggest that um, you know universities have an obligation uh, not to create a hostile environment uh, for students. And therefore, if somebody writes or tweets something that can be interpreted as offensive to a group, that's creating a hostile... So in other words, they're engaging in um, entrepreneurial... Um, interpretations of the law which actually are not the interpretation of the law that would stand up in a court. So they're going well beyond, in fact, they're violating the law. They are placing free speech below um, these equality considerations. That's just an example of what you get when a culture is saturated with cultural socialist ideas. Um, It will lead people to take interpretations of the law that are either incorrect or, or are extreme, and I think that's what was occurring uh, let's say in the US that you 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 know you had this idea of affirmative action which initially meant uh, actually non-discrimination it was then subtly the meaning of that was subtly changed and interpreted differently by bureaucracies by uh, by judges uh, in in a different direction and then subsequent interpreters built on those taking extreme interpretation so all of this is occurring I would argue for cultural reasons, and so that the legal, in my view, is largely downstream of culture, and, and the and, and so I don't think the incentive-driven account. Now, and and actually, Charles Lehman talked about you know when Reagan rolled back a lot of these interpretations. Um, actually, companies just plowed right ahead with their their EDI. They they yeah, the fact that all of the incentives to remove um, these these uh, this diversity training were 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 essentially you know was. Clarence Thomas and Ronald Reagan had more or less gotten rid of those incentives, but the juggernaut just kept on rolling because I would argue it was driven not really by cold, uh, you know, seeking to avoid lawsuits. You know that yes, that was a a factor earlier on, but I still think the overriding factor uh, is a new cultural sensibility of cultural socialism, which which was dominant, and it's very hard because people didn't people really didn't know how to argue against it very well. I think this is the other problem is if someone says you're against affirmative action, you must be a racist. How do you know how to respond to that, right?
1: No, this affirmative action- You're acting like every third world, third world dictator, every third world genocide, uh, genocider in history. That's the best, That's that's not just like an, an emotionally effective uh, response, but it's also true. I, I agree with you, but
0: it's, it's finding the right buzzword, the right one second. Neo racism. Well, yeah, I know. Like, yeah. I just somehow I think that that those people will you know can brush that aside as, as nonsense. That you know it doesn't sort of resonate easily with someone who's not as well read or educated as you or I. You
1: know, you you almost no, think I think it, I mean just look at the Republican Party by education, right? I think it's quite effective, right? The Republican Party is actually the party with that kind of punch right now right? What they don't have is basically like oligarchical power. And here's where I want to talk about where I agree with you, Okay. right? I agree with you in that I think that there is this kind of elite culture or this kind of oligarchical culture that it is downstream of. I think I initially interpreted your point as saying it's downstream of like a mainstream culture, which I disagree with. Right, but I don't think that's what happened uh, leading up to uh, the disparate impact. That was very unpopular at that time. Right, leading up to the disparate impact decision, it was that basically there was this oligarchy with this with this kind of culture of uh, cultural cultural socialism, and those people were in got themselves in positions of power, and they put those rulings down, and it, it it was influenced greatly by their kind of internal culture. I agree with you on that.
0: But but in addition to that, you know, someone like Lyndon Baines Johnson, for example. You know, not necessarily mm-hmm. what you would think of initially as, uh, you know, a radical. You know, yes, he brought in the civil rights movement, but here's somebody who can who can talk about, um, you know, equal rights for African-Americans and then just smoothly glide into, you know, we want equality as a result. I mean, I th- mm. or even Richard Nixon and, and the cynical adoption of the Philadelphia Plan, which, which advances affirmative action.
1: Right, you know, Richard Nixon, one of the worst presidents in history. I right, think. right.
0: But but I actually think for a lot of these individuals, you know, they were living through a moment when they didn't necessarily see these fine distinctions. You know, we're helping black people is the kind of framework, right? So we're, you know, mm. we're getting rid of segregated schools and um, we're getting rid of racial discrimination in voting um, and, and segregated water fountains. But at the same time, um, yeah, of course, we're going to have equality of a result. And it sort of slides from, you know, every, people can want equality of result, as and, and I'd have no problem with that as a, as a sort of aspiration. But then to sort of essentially through some kind of a, a process of, of, of mission creep in terms of, of these words that we're suddenly at a place where it's quotas and timetables, you know, that happens very quickly. Going from President Johnson slipping from uh, more or less equal rights equal treatment to equality of a result in his speech in 1965, and then fairly quickly thereafter we've slipped into quotas and timetables and contract compliance, and and everyone's more or less on board with that. I actually think this is sort of guided, you know, it's not just the radicals, there are the sort of almost somebody who wants to be seen as a sort of moral individual, but who is more or less a centrist, even a conservative, swept along with this, partly because they how could you be against it? it's like being against a cuddly teddy bear you know how can you be against anti racism anti fascism you know this is where the packaging that surrounds a lot of these cultural socialist ideas is so seductive it's like the uh, the iron fist in the velvet glove you can't really say no to the velvet glove <laughs> and so i think that's partly it's not just it would be a mistake to just see it as these radicals getting into positions of power and and working the system no i actually think this is enabled by the, a much larger group of well-meaning people who just can't understand that they're being sold a bill of goods, that this velvet glove contains within it uh, an intolerant and illiberal iron fist. It's very difficult to crack through that velvet glove. I mean, th- and that's one of the reasons we need a kind of counter velvet glove that can immediately unmask the, the pretensions of, say, anti-racism or anti-fascism that are, that are built into this narrative.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think, yeah, we, we've kind of reached it. Not even a synthesis, because I think like this kind of reveals underlying agreement that was, that was kind of there all along. Uh, I, I think a good place to explore this going further is, uh, so you're in the UK, right? And if I my memory serves me right, the Conservatives have been in power there since, uh, was it 2014, 2015? 2010. 2010, oh, one cycle, okay, yeah, 2010, okay. Uh, so they've been in power for 12, 13 years now. And at least from my kind of ignorant American and Canadian perspective, <laughs> uh, the country has gotten more, or like the bureaucracy, the kind of norms, the kind of laws in the UK have gotten substantially more left-wing, not more right-wing in those in those 12 years. Yeah. You don't have that right. Yes
0: you do. You absolutely have I that do. right. You do. Wow. Yeah, you know so you do. That's quite shocking, right? It is shocking, and I think there are a couple of things that are that are important to understand here. I mean, one is clearly the cultural socialist side of the ledger. I mean, they are more organized, they're obviously more motivated, and Richard talks about the fact this idea that they care more. Well, they're certainly more mobilized and organized. So they were well ahead on this. But secondly, So a lot of these, the Equality, 2010 Equality Act was put in by Tony Blair. You know, a lot of these innovations come from the Labour Party in the short periods when they're in power, but they are institutionalized under the Conservatives. Now, what's going on there? Well, what's going on there is, first of all, um, the Conservatives are much, much more like the kind of establishment Republicans, the the sort of pre-Trump Republicans. Most MPs are economic Conservatives, not cultural Conservatives. Now, even Brexiteers, you know, the the, the Brexiteer, the Brexit faction that's dominated the Conservative Party are the uh, global Britain economic free trader type uh, Brexiteers whose narrative was, uh, oh, well, Britain on its own can be free of regulation to trade with the world and be a dynamic economy and so on. That is not why the vast majority of people voted Brexit, but (laughs) they managed to commandeer uh, the Brexit ship. This small minority of free trader economic Brexiteers have taken over. And John, oh yeah, many such yeah. cases. <laughs> Johnson is one of them. Uh, now, yeah. However, now in addition, you so he had a succession of prime ministers: David Cameron, Theresa May. Um, now, what I would say is, you know, Cameron and May they they knew they had to talk tough on immigration because that was driving uh, anti-European sentiment. So they did have to sort of mollify that. They weren't necessarily true believers in that but so what May did is she talked quite tough on on immigration even having these uh, you know I, I think she had these go home vans that were driving around so she, she sort of took a tough line on immigration and almost as a compensation she had this whole narrative of well we don't want to be the nasty party now do we and so she brought in this whole so-called burning injustices agenda which was all about you know disparities by race and gender that whole agenda, advanced greatly under uh, Theresa May, the sort of race disparity audit, all these sorts of things. So actually, the conservatives were very much going along and trying to almost outdo labor um, in how how sort of cultural, social, culturally egalitarian they were. Um, and it's only now under Johnson, what you get is the beginnings of the change. And This is driven more by small groups of politicians, the ones who kind of get what's going on for whom culture is important. Uh, Kemi Badnock, for example, on critical race theory uh, would be Oliver Dowden on uh, statues and on uh, culture and museums. So you have a few of these entrepreneurs who care about the issue, who are allowed, Munira Mirza in the number 10 policy unit, they're allowed to do some things, but under sort of strict limits. Johnson himself, uh, is very shy about doing anything about it. His wife, who's influential, supports trans rights and Stonewall and all those sorts of things. Not, you know, the trans agenda, not just trans rights, which, of course, is fine. But um, so you have these different factions in the Tory party because it's largely a culturally, you know, the MPs have a very large, uh, largely liberal, economic liberal focus to them. Uh, now, what's happened, what's interesting is this leadership contest, of course, is you've had... Kemi Badnock soaring amongst the membership uh, in the initial running because the MPs choose the final two. She wasn't chosen. Uh, But in the final two, Liz Truss, who is the more culture warrior of the two candidates, has clearly emerged as the kind of populist candidate Has pulled well ahead, like 25 points or so ahead of Sunak. Sunak is now coming out again with attacks on, on, on these issues. And also what's interesting is one of the leading early candidates, Penny Mordaunt, who uh, is essentially, you know, her record is essentially is incredibly woke on on gender, on race, and all these issues. Um, that actually scuttled her her candidacy. She was rising and and looked like she would emerge as the leader in the in the early running, um, and that candidacy was sunk by her position on these issues. And that's very interesting to me. So it shows that. In Britain now, these issues are starting to emerge and starting to matter in politics, and that's not been lost on the front runner. So I, I think that's actually quite a good thing. Uh, so I, I think that the... Right, and you
1: know, uh, go, on, go on, sorry. No, no, I
0: just think that Britain, that the politics of the Conservative Party is in flux and is in change. It's just happening later than in the US on this issue. Um, on immigration, Britain was, was ahead of the US in terms of Conservative Developments, but on culture wars, mm-hmm. the U.S. is ahead of Britain.
1: Uh, so, so actually, this this is just a clarification I want to have. Who, who votes in the Conservative uh, primary leadership race?
0: It's just a hundred
1: thousand party members. So, it, okay, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not like the U.S. where it's basically and and how do you it, so in Canada. This is why I ask this. In in Canada, we're actually having a leadership race as well. And it's basically, it's very strange because what the candidates actually do is they go out and they campaign and they actually like sell like conservative party memberships, right? That's $15 a membership and you have to have a membership to vote. So they basically do go on like these mass recruiting drives uh, for people to like join the party. And so, so their electorate is just crazily unrepresentative, and basically, like, very much based on uh, the candidate's operations, which I think is actually a very nice test. Uh, and, and so, I was wondering, I was wondering if uh, the UK operates in a in a similar way.
0: Well, I think there are similarities. So, so Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, I think we. I think yeah. at the very beginning, at least, we just copied yeah. your party system. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. I'm Canadian. Yeah. I should say I'm Canadian, by the way. As you probably know, but oh. uh, but but if it doesn't. Uh, otherwise, yeah. But but what I would say though is that there is obviously a lot of similarities. You know, in the Labour Party, they had a big big expansion of membership um, of pro Corbyn. The pro Corbyn faction swelled the membership, mm. and that played a big role in in, in Corbyn winning the leadership. So that's all potentially possible, but I think it happens on a, on a perhaps on a longer time scale. I just don't think it can happen during a leadership race. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the the rules uh, in the Conservative Party, but I don't. That's certainly not a story that that there's this sudden surge of membership of people backing one of the other candidates. Um, so maybe in the Conservative Party there are a different set of rules. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, now, how unrepresentative are they? I actually don't think that the conservative, the 100,000 people who are voting are, are that unrepresentative. I think who, the people who are really unrepresentative are the Tory MPs as a class mm. because of how they're recruited. Uh, many of them are coming from elite universities. They're coming in through particular channels where, um, you know, in general, I think they're very unrepresentative of their voters. Um, if you compare the Tory membership, you know they tend to be older, um, they tend to be from relatively wealthy uh, southern but non-urban constituencies. But I, I would say that their views on these cultural questions are actually very close to those of the median conservative voter. So they're representing the conservative voter, um, I think, very well on the cultural issues. Probably less so on the economic issues. On the economic issues, they're probably well to the right of the typical conservative voter, many of whom are, uh, you know, working class Brexit voters. Oh, it's in that direction. Yeah. Okay, that
1: makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I (laughs) I definitely think on things
0: like Brexit, immigration, culture wars, the party membership is very close to the attitudes of the uh, conservative 2019 voter.
1: Yeah, and... I I know I have a lot of libertarian listeners. The simple way I I need to put this is like the threat to libertarianism is never the, is never the front door, right? The front door is actually typically downstream by the time those those kind of explicit conflicts over economic policies are happening, like you can see this this lately actually. It, there there's kind of a lot more losses that have already happened. And you know you don't want to have those losses. You don't want to have those losses that basically limit your power and basically strengthen the opposing media apparatus and political apparatus and bureaucracies. You don't want to have them, you you don't want them to have that advantage when when they're when they're fighting the economic fights later on. Uh, so yeah, I do think it's it's very important for libertarians to be pretty vigilant of this stuff as well. Uh, is there any kind of signs of basically taking a much more conscious approach? Maybe some of the Hanania stuff, or or other again, policy plans that they have otherwise in undoing this in the UK.
0: Yeah, I do think that, and this is where I think to some degree the UK has is doing some pioneering things. So so you know. Whereas under the Trump administration, it was very seat of the pants. There was no plans. I think it was very ineffective. Um, yes, they brought in the critical race theory bans. They did some good stuff on, uh, you know, uh, Title IX and, and, and a whole bunch. Of, you know, so the- yeah,
1: even that, like, it's like you're going to do that. You're going to give that away as a tactic on the last three months of your presidency. I know and Biden just reverses it. It's like, you could not do. You could not do a worse job of this. This is awful. Like, I agree. But even. <laughs> As my favorite, uh, as my favorite Trump quote, uh, "There is no strategy. There was never a strategy." <laughs> and of course, he was talking about Russia. But it's it's very it's very much an epitome of his entire of his entire uh, of his entire uh, presidency.
0: Yeah, I I think that's right. Although I actually think something like introducing a, a critical race theory ban, getting it overturned by Biden is serving a useful purpose in the sense that you it's very clear now which party supports um, action on critical race theory and which party doesn't. And so that's a signal that's, that now the voters understand and it's been politicized, which I think it has to be. I think these issues, the cultural issues, need to be brought more and more into the political arena for change to occur. Um, because all the institutions are largely controlled by cultural socialists. The decisions are taken. Uh, they're not, uh, it's behind closed doors. It's not transparent. You need to get, uh, the political world and government involved. And now it may be the wrong government and they may do things you don't like, but at least then people know what they're getting and why they're getting it. So I, I still, even though, you know, it was brought in, in the last three months, I still think it's had a, a salutary effect. I mean, I think here in Britain, You know, what would I say? I I mean, I think something like the Academic Freedom Bill, and it's something that uh, it's a bill which I've kind of been involved with in a certain way because some of the recommendations uh, came out of a a think tank report that we did, and and I've testified on this. But, you know, that's an example of where there, you know, some policy innovators within the conservative government, within, you know, advisors can spearhead these initiatives. There was a, a report on um, race inequality that, that, um, you know, and this report was just attacked by the sort of grievance industry because it denied the existence of institutional racism, but it was very methodical, very data rich. And it simply made the point we, we, We don't find evidence for, you know, institutionalist systemic racism. Um, We certainly, there is, there's racism, there's inequality, but there are many, many different sources of it. And and it's a very nuanced and subtle kind of report. I think that's important. So there are a number of these different initiatives that uh, were very much done in a non-populist way that were sort of done in a sort of very measured scientific scholarly way, but ran very much against the kind of race industry consensus. Uh, And and I think that was important. So there have been some useful things, uh, but there was not an overall strategy from the Johnson Mm -hmm. administration, which I think if they'd gone in... So, for example, I think you need both. I think you both need to be signaling what you're going to do and doing things. And I think DeSantis is very much doing that. I don't agree with everything he's done, but I think I agree with a lot of things that he's done uh, where you have to actually campaign on these issues So you raise their salience within the electorate. And at the same time, you have to have a plan, a concrete plan about how you're going to work within the law, within the liberal tradition to actually roll back a lot of these measures. And and so I think that's what's required. Now, there are a number of ways in which you get there. So I also think, actually, if you're going to prioritize this issue, that also probably means that you need to elevate it above other issues. And I think, for example, the economic tax and spend issues have to become less important, less central for what it means to be a conservative. Now, of course, they're still important. You can still think they're important. But the more energy and effort that's poured into that issue, the less energy and effort is going to be poured into uh, these issues. They're simply limited bandwidth. And I think there has to be some decision made to, uh, you know, to focus the meaning of conservatism more on the cultural side. Um, and, and 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 with with along with that a whole series of mechanisms around selection uh, or primarying to use a, a U.S. terminology, you know, the, the, keeping track of of the voting records of congressmen, their statements, trying to come up with some kind of ranking so you can put pressure on candidates who are uh, essentially on the wrong side of this issue or who are not motivated by this issue. You have to try and to some degree, either get them interested or sideline them. And, and similarly, in terms of uh, taking action, I, I also think that, that you know government action to reform bureaucratic agencies, to reform those institutions that are controlled by government uh, is necessary, is, is the main route through which we're going to get reforms. I don't, I'm less convinced by, and this is maybe where we get to UATX, which I very much support. I think these initiatives are important. I don't think they're going to change the game, except in fields where you have low barriers to entry, like media. Uh, But in terms of things like universities and tech firms and so on, regulation uh, by elected government is, I think, our best hope. Um, And so for the the academic freedom bill, for example, will simply not allow universities to quash the academic freedom of their their staff and students. I mean, the, the aim there is simply to Uh, neutralize universities' ability to do that um, and and also uh, enforce a duty to not just protect but to promote academic freedom. That's an example of where you can use government to neutralize um, institutions' capacity to repress. I think that's going to be a big part of what needs to happen. Uh, I don't really believe that just the marketplace of ideas that somehow setting up new institutions, I, I think that is... It's important to model good behavior in, in a University of Austin, but I don't think that's going to, to really change the game. I think you have to change the incentives that um, presidents of universities uh, are facing. And so they can they can talk if if an activist comes to them and says, you know, force all academic staff to, to sign a diversity statement, they can say, we can't do that, it's against the law. That's the answer that I'm looking for. Um, and and so I think we're going to need that kind of well orchestrated um, legally sound kind of incremental it doesn't act, it can happen reasonably quickly but it's got to be well thought out you need lawyers that know what they're talking about to, to go over these policies and simply what you're doing is you're issuing executive orders in America or guidance uh, would be what it's called in Britain where you're Defining very tightly in a way that people can't wiggle out of. What is? uh, Where are the? You know, equality duties are subservient to free speech duties. Or this is the definition of harassment. You know, someone tweeting their opinion is not harassment cannot be defined as that. This is the definition of racism. Writing it down with examples in law, nailing everything down in, in high levels of detail. To the point where people and in institutions can't wriggle away, and that—that that I think is probably is, is something that we need to move towards, and not just the sound bites. You got to have the sound bites, but sound bites on their own are not going to do
1: it, right? And so, I mean, you talked about a few specifics there. Is there anything? Is there anything else that you think would be good in terms of uh, legislation around universities? Yeah, I mean
0: I I would favor so the the academic freedom bill uh, is about protecting universities having a duty to protect and promote academic freedom they can be fined if they aren't in compliance of course part of part of this is that you know there's a new office that will enforce this you have to have the right people in and those mm. ha- you have to have political appointees you cannot have the sector being allowed to determine who's appointed there so and now people will say, well what if the other <laughs> party gets imparted? Fine. If they want to get in power and get rid of academic freedom, then people at least know where they stand. And they yeah, they already right? have
1: their own. They do have their own yeah. bureaucracy, but if, they have their own. Yeah, bureaucracy.
0: But if way. you don't politicize it, then the left wins because they control the process. Right. So you have to politicize. That's the only hope. Um, so that would be one thing. What I would say, in addition, though, to academic freedom protection, that's going to get rid of, uh, you know, no platforming. It's going to probably get rid of canceling or you know, hugely impact um, Firings of, of academics, but what I think is also necessary and isn't in the academic freedom bill would be um, compulsory political neutrality of you know, anyone who's acting in an official capacity. Not a not a university professor who has their academic freedom, but if they are head of department and they're speaking as a head of department to their staff, or if you are the university and you are communicating as the university or the president of the, of the university, um, you would have a duty to be neutral on all matters, whereas there is a significant, defined perhaps as a 20 point, uh, you know, where there is a significant difference of opinion on a subject, you cannot put forth an official position. Um, and, and there's a report, 1967 Calvin report in the University of Chicago that talks about this, is the university taking a political position is actually violating the academic freedom of their staff members. Because if you have a different opinion from that as a staff member, um, are you are you allowed to hold that opinion? Right. So, so I think mm. uh, political enforce political neutrality for uh, officials. Secondly, I you know the problem of viewpoint diversity. Right. So now I don't support affirmative action for conservatives, but what I would say is. I think it's reasonable to, um, to say to institutions that are in receipt of public money, um, if you want to do race and gender equity, diversity and inclusion, you've got to match uh, exactly the same level of equity, diversity and inclusion on uh, politics and ideology. So the, all the monitoring, monitoring and tracking that you do on race and gender, you've got to do on, on ideology and voting. Uh, and and so if you want to do zero on race and gender, you can do zero on politics and ideology, but you can't do one without doing the other. I, I think that uh, bringing that in what I call equivalent action, I think that would be a useful uh, a, a useful tool because I think you know either universities are going to want to preserve their race and gender EDI apparatus, in which case they will be forced to have affirmative affirmative action for conservatives, or they will find the whole idea so distasteful they'll dismantle their edi and, and either either
1: outcome i think is a good outcome <laughs> so. yeah I, I think like the thing is though i i think that it's not even to go back to the kind of selection effect i actually put it less to i mean of course there is some there is some kind of discrimination that's going on against conservatives But honestly, like if you're someone who has, it's not even just conservative, but if you're someone who has an orientation towards reality, you're just not really going to become, especially like a social scientist uh, for like the vast majority of people. I think that those areas, just the methodology is completely wrong. The assumptions that you have going into the world, how you're actually measuring these effects. They're not only like, there's this wonderful idea of an anti-truth. It's not just that it's false. It's not just like we we just like, you know, got the wrong number on the study. It's that... (laughs) it's specifically set up to give you the opposite of the truth, right? What is causing, what is causing racial problems? What is, uh, what is causing basically political polarization? All of these, basically the assumptions that go into the system are not only false, but are especially, uh, especially I think actually related to like conservative or related to like polarization and extremism are are literally just written in to get the wrong answer. The point of them is not just to like, not just like a, an accident, not just noisy, right? But they are specifically designed to get the wrong answer. And so if you're someone who actually genuinely cares about those things, like the last thing you're going to do is work in academia.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. So you're, you're right. It's not just, so there's a number of separate issues. One is that there is this anti-conservative bias that, you know, for example, 40% of, American social scientists, academics that I polled wouldn't hire an own Trump supporter for a job. And in Britain, about one, one in three wouldn't hire a known Brexit supporter. So you have that explicit anti-conservative bias. But at the same time, you've also got um, this methodological. You know, the second issue is, you know, do you support the activist agenda or not in your research? Now, I do think there are a lot. Large... It,
1: it, it's not even that. It, it's not even that. I think that it's 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 just the kind of method, it's it's a kind of fundamentally egalitarian uh, system of methodology. It's very much ignorant of individual differences. Like I know so many computer scientists here, are just like I, I don't want and, and just absolutely brilliant people uh, as computer scientists, mathematicians. Obviously, not a very political subject. And if you have this orientation towards truth and you're in academia, it's just repugnant it's just like get me out of here let me work at least let me work at google if not like something more interesting like palantir right like this is just uh, people claim that there are the all of these like conservative academics who and i'm sure there are some right but especially in a lot of these more technical fields like if you say like there are a lot of these conservative academics they just want to like not be discriminated against it's like no if you're a conservative academic or if quite frankly you're just like if you're just like not an ideologue, if you're just a centrist, it's even, right, you just don't want to do this. You just don't want to be here.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think roughly 40 to 45 percent of the centrist academics I polled said that they self-censored. So there is a significant. It's not as high as the sort of 70 percent of amongst conservatives. But so there is a significant self-censoring amongst those centrist academics. But what I would say is that a lot of, you know, if you're just really into your molecular biology or your fluid mechanics, or whatever it is, I still think the majority of what's published in the top journals, your labs, you know, you can still, if, as long as you're willing to sort of just at the edges tip your cap to this ideology, do a little bit of EDI Statement to your grant application, even though you don't believe in it. I mean, if that's not important to you to take a stand against this stuff, I mean, you could still have a fairly enjoyable research existence doing very falsifiable scientific stuff. Uh, And I think a lot of that research is still being done in universities, it's being encroached upon. uh, But certainly in the sciences, you know, you can probably. yes they there are these forms of ideology that are creeping in in different places but on the whole most of the output is still uh, reasonably tr- you know truth-based and and on, uh, it's still based on paparian science I, I, and even in the social sciences you know there's a, as long as you're not coming up with the wrong conclusions about the wrong topics you know you can study roll call voting in in Congress and you can study uh, economic policy so, so there's many areas if you're uh technical type or you just want to study voting behavior, it's still pretty open and still pretty scientific. Um, It's just as long as you're willing to tip your cap and not rock the boat on in certain areas. So uh, equity, diversity, hiring and training, and whatever. So I'm not sure that it's enough to really throw the whole
1: thing off. Um, I I, I... I mean, the the difference here is just what we're talking about when we're saying certain ideas, right? I I think specifically in psychology, I'm most aware of this because this is something that I've tried to have a little bit of involvement with, uh, is that uh, there's just widespread ignorance of individual differences. And if you say, like, if you want to control these various effects, education is the same way. If you want to say, like, look, guys, you should be controlling by IQ here. You should be controlling one. And like Richard also has many many examples of this. If you look at, for example, this, this well known social science result of uh, I think one the way that it's sold is that if you have more books in your house, then your child is likely to to uh, do better in school. Right? Is is yeah. is likely to do better academically, and. Anyone who has any exposure to individual differences, like, hmm, I wonder why that could be, right? Like, what what variable is correlated with both of these and happens also to be heritable, right? But if you just don't have that, you're going to, you're basically going to break all of psychology, especially all of population psychology or anything that has to do with useful outcomes, and like the category of things of like anything that has to do with useful outcomes, it's it's gigantic, right? So. Like you cannot have psychology without looking at individual differences in in intelligence and to some degree in personality as well. Like this is just completely absurd. Mm, And, and yet that is the status quo for psychology and look maybe for other areas. Actually, I think econ, I think econ economics is less bad. I think for science, the, the difference is, is actually uh, quite different. Uh, I, I agree that it's not like you can't do anything, but it's more like you can't do anything efficiently. Everything has to be funneled through this way. And basically like the alternative is just so enticing. You have so much tech funding now you have so much and, and especially like open source science. Now I think it's actually very positive. Like this is a, like, this is a hopeful thing, right? This is an amazing positive thing, but I think, uh, as a result, the kind of net utility of being at these universities is diminishing. Private labs, industrial research is going up. Uh, and I just don't see a lot of excitement there. And of course, this is, this is my kind of bias. This is my bias of being involved at basically like technical universities, uh, very much away from uh, the, the universities I'm most familiar with are MIT and the University of Waterloo. And to some degree, to some degree, Stanford as well. I've haven't I've been having a lot of conversation with Stanford people uh, recently. And like, if you were to pick like a th- three universities that are like most tilted w- towards technology, uh, towards basically this, these kind of emergent sectors, like th- those would be the three, right? So I I think my bias is pretty clear there. But yeah, I'm just not seeing that excitement around going back into academia.
0: Well, I I, I think you're right, and it depends on the field. I think. You have to look, though, at the totality of these fields and, and not just certain subfields, you know. And also, you know, there are different motivations. So, for example, somebody may, you know, in a private lab, the knowledge is proprietary. Let's say, or you you're you're only researching something that is is something that the company wants to research. You know, I, I think you you have a broader palette to play with in academia. You might not have the same work pressures. Um, there are a whole bunch of other reasons that someone might choose academia who's who's intellectually oriented. So I'm not... now, But you're right. that. So the question is more how many areas are compromised and by what degree. I, I mean, if I'm thinking of the social sciences and humanities, I have two categories. One is unfashionable things like military history or classical architecture. These are things that are not going to be funded because they're not, uh, you know, <laughs> about rectifying systemic inequality or, or 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 they're not about modernism or something but so you have the unfashionable areas that are being neglected and then you have the uh cancelable areas you mentioned iq um or even the dangerous areas you know showing arthur sakamoto's work you know yeah yeah but he, he showed the you know asian and asian americans aren't penalized in the labor market you now look, look look isn't that interesting well that's not something that you really can publish, and so so I, again, there are there are different topics where where you have um, more restrictions than others, and and I guess the, the question is in the totality of what academia is should be doing, uh, the most pressing problems, uh, how much is being suppressed, how much is how much how many disincentives are there for talented people to move away. I think it's a problem. I don't know how big a problem it is in the sciences. I would certainly say that in the closer you get towards the soft social sciences, the more corruption, the more distortion there is. Um, and, and that's where the biggest problem is by far. I think that uh, you know sociology, psychology, uh, but particularly sociology, if we were to take an extreme example or anthropology, I think they're almost entirely distorted fields of course you need to study inequality and yes, there's maybe some justification for studying it in some quarters from a certain perspective. But yeah, I mean, there you would say that the field is almost entirely, you know, very heavily distorted. Whereas maybe in physics, uh, it's, it's, it's more marginal or it's a more limited impact.
1: Um, so yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> physics is something quite different. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, sorry. That, that, that's a totally different conversation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Go
0: on. Yeah, so, so I just think it's a question of how badly damaged the enterprise is, that the truth mission, truth-seeking mission is, um, and how many people are being dissuaded from entering. You know, And I think the more you're getting towards the sort of soft end of the social sciences, I mean, probably there is a disincentive anyway because of the reputation of academia as, as a left-wing field being increasingly strong and that dissuading people. Um, I, I did some work looking at graduate students and you could see that conservative master's degree students were uh, self-selecting away uh, from an academic career that was unattractive to them to a greater extent. Whereas once they progressed to PhD, they were probably willing to just hold their nose and go go through with it. So it's probably happening happening at an earlier an earlier level, like maybe masters or or perhaps the top end of of undergraduate. That those, those signals. Are being experienced by dissenters as, as powerful, and therefore they will select away. It's not really about money or, or the traditional uh, reasons that are given by particularly progressives for why you don't get conservatives in academia. I actually think, you know, once you reach the level of of the mas- you know the master's level, you know, intellectually curious people who aren't necessarily motivated by money are being put off. Uh, but that's more in the social sciences. I'm not sure yet that that's something that's going to affect
1: science. Yeah, it, it's it's not just that. It's just, it, it's kind of like meta political, if you want to put it that way. It's basically like it, it's kind of cultural, right? Just the kind of deference, the kind of feminization, to use Hanania's term, or Hanania's and others. I don't okay. think it's original to him, right? Like we kind of norms there if you're someone who cares about truth if you're someone who doesn't like playing office politics like it's just so lame it's just boring <laughs> yeah um, yeah I th- like I th- like I know that's not a very rigorous argument but <laughs> that that is I think the root of it
0: I mean I think I'll, however to be to 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 sort of steel man the other side I mean I do think there are different spheres and different fields and subfields and in some subfields where it is still about hitting the top journals and getting you know <laughs> Labs. Yeah, some
1: subfields I... are, are doing fine, I think.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, um... Certainly economics. I'm, I'm kind of like... I, I got white-pilled on academic economics recently from a friend. Okay. I think it's... Yeah, I, I think it's doing at least quite better. Uh, yeah, some, some of the natural sciences... Uh, mathematics I mean mathematics is always going to be its own thing it doesn't really need to be attached to academia it's both the the field that would be most easily reformed just by people going on Twitter right um, or, uh, but it's also like it's also surprisingly resistant to any kind of corrupt regime. Uh, I think like Curtis Yarvin was on the show remarking that the Soviet union had excellent mathematicians, which which is true, by the way, the Soviet union did have excellent uh, pure mathematicians there. They were, people were translating that stuff like well after, well after the fall. Right. So, so yeah, like I I don't want to give the impression that all of academia is like, is like the root of uh, the root of the poison, poison tree right? But the main point here is, is almost like a, separate from that. I don't think it's completely separate, but it's like, it's about, it's like the demand side, right? It's like, or sorry, no, it'd be the, it's like the supply side, right? There's just not a lot of people, or I don't know, depends what you would, you know, what you categorize this that. but it's like, basically like, there's just not a lot of enthusiasm.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't know enough people in the sciences to know, what's going on with enthusiasm levels I, 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 and how much cultural socialism is behind or the political typing of academia is behind uh, a drop in satisfaction, for example, or attraction of these fields to researchers. But, you know, I just think that the problem is just so much worse in the social sciences and humanities than anywhere I agree.
1: else. Uh, and yeah, we're coming up on the, yeah. uh, we're coming up on time. Okay. Uh, So I want to ask you the last question of the show, if you can, if you can stay. Yeah. Uh, Right. And the last question of the show, everyone gets this is what is something that has too much order and needs more chaos and something which has too much chaos and needs more order and, uh, preferably something we haven't talked about yet. Boy, um, (laughs) too much order. I mean, I would
0: say that, um, well, it's hard to get off what we've talked about because that's probably where I'd say <laughs> the current order needs to be disrupted. Right. It's, it's the, the current ideological order um, that prescribes uh, a particular view of the world uh, and a particular set of pr- working practices around uh, equity, diversity and inclusion. You know, that whole that whole field and its constructions needs to be broken up and, and disordered, Um uh, that may not be a very satisfactory answer for what you're looking for. Um, well, we'll look at order and then we'll
1: we'll, we'll yeah come back maybe right What's yeah something
0: more order. Uh, uh, well, more order. I mean, I think you know, uh, essentially, uh, society in a way, the culture. Uh, I would say the culture needs to be. Um, I, I think if we look at things such as, uh, yeah, things like criminality and, and immigration, for example, and. I, I would tend to, to you know take that classical almost populist position that that we kind of need um, more social cohesion and, and more order, but without obviously going you know you don't want anything in it taken to an extreme is is a negative. So you still want you know the immigration, you still want uh, questioning of of the police, you know holding them to account. But I just think that um, we're not necessarily pricing in the. The downstream effects of disorder uh, on subsequent generations on, uh, you know, so many social outcomes are being hampered by uh, the kinds of uh, yes, loss of social cohesion that, that we've got in society. We need to sort of there needs to be less of an emphasis, I think, always on on difference and more of an emphasis that, hey, there are some benefits to um, greater sameness and homogeneity. While at the same time being tolerant of eccentricity and difference, you can, I think you can, I think you can sort of thread that needle. But I think right now with the emphasis, that modernist emphasis solely on being different, being divergent, being you know, diverse, all the time, I just think that's that's maybe something that's not positive uh, long term for society on on so many different levels.
1: All right. Well, thanks for coming on, and I hope you had a great time. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. That was my interview with Eric Kaufman. If you like the show, just like I said at the beginning, what you can do is let a friend know. It's the best thing and the easiest way to help. We're not taking any kind of donations yet, so that's just the number one way to help me and to hopefully help someone else too. If you like the show, you can come back next week for another amazing episode.